Hi, it's Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. Today I get to talk with Lily Levitt. I first heard Lily share a bit about her life when she joined her father, Stephen Levitt, on his podcast, No Stupid Questions, part of the Freakonomics Radio Network. I was deeply touched by what she shared about struggling for years with disordered eating and am extremely grateful she was open to joining us so our listeners can learn from her tremendous wisdom and admirable honesty. Just a reminder that we'd love to hear from you, and if you have any questions for us, you can find us on our site at traumastewardship.com and through Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. Today, I have the great joy of being in conversation with Lily Levitt. Lily, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I came to know of you through a very beautiful conversation you and your sister were having with your father, Stephen Levitt, on his podcast, which is under the Freakonomics umbrella, People I Mostly Admire. And I was so moved by listening to the conversation with you and your sister and how you were engaging with your father. And particularly, you were so open and honest sharing about some times in your life when there was some eating disorder challenges. And so that really stuck with me. And I shared that episode with so many people who found it helpful. And then more recently, you and I had an opportunity to connect more personally. So I'm wondering if that would be a good place to start, or if you would like to share with us where you are currently in your life, what you're currently doing. I'm open to beginning the conversation however you would like. Um, Really anywhere is fine with me. If you had questions sort of after listening to that podcast, I could lo- I'd love to go deeper into that. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. One of the things that you shared in there was, of course, how common it is to have challenges around eating, disordered eating. I know there's more awareness now than there used to be when I was growing up. And still, I think it is something that is not unlike some of the other challenges we're having with the escalating rates of depression, anxiety, suicidality, where I think that there's still many of us who are somewhat at a loss in terms of exactly how to be of support professionally for folks who are struggling to say nothing of personally. And I think so many folks can relate to having challenges with body image, with eating, with all of it. You know, we're recording this in the United States. So certainly in the United States, there's a lot of challenges here. And of course, you know, other places in the world as well. So I'm wondering if you want to start by sharing a bit about your story with us. And then I know from our recent correspondence, you have wonderful, wonderful advice to share with folks as well. But maybe we can start with your story. Certainly. Yeah. So, I mean, like you said, it is so pervasive. I mean, it seems like there's not a single person in my life or, you know, that just has not been touched by some sort of disordered eating, some sort of body image struggle, which is incredibly sad, but it's also incredibly hopeful that there's like every single person you turn to is potentially an ally for you. So just sort of a little bit about my story. I started struggling with 
food with body image around the age of 12, I want to say. I, at the time I was playing soccer very intensely, which, which did help. I was, I was super into that. So that sort of distracted me from things. And around the age of 14, I decided to quit soccer and I started ballet, which was sort of the beginning of the end in a lot of ways. I mean, if you don't know anything about ballet, you're in a leotard and tights for hours and hours on end. You're in front of a huge mirror, which often distorts your body in certain ways. You know, you'll step on one side and you'll be super, super skinny and you'll step a foot to the right and you're suddenly you're, you're larger than before and you have no idea what you look like. And so for, you know, an adolescent mind who already has been struggling with food and body, that was just about the worst thing that I could have done. I threw myself into that for about four years. I was intensively doing ballet. So 30 hours a week on top of school, which in hindsight was absolutely bonkers. I mean, just absurd. I don't even know when I had time to sleep and do my homework, but somehow I did it. And so all throughout this time, I was very much in what society would deem a healthy looking body. I had super restrictive thoughts and if you looked inside my head, you'd be like, this girl needs help. But if you looked at my body, my weight wasn't changing that much. And my behaviors to the outside world seemed relatively okay. I mean, I would eat in front of family and I would eat in front of friends and I would do what I could so that it seemed like I was functioning and I was healthy. But yeah, inside, not so much. Around the age of 16 or 17, I disclosed that I was struggling with with this to my ballet mentor, whom I love and I I still talk to to this day. And she, I did not realize she was going to do this at the time, but she, she told my parents about it. And this, while I understand why she did it, this was potentially the wrong move in hindsight because it actually propelled me into a much darker place. Um, I felt like suddenly my family and some of my friends knew that I had an eating disorder, but I, in a lot of ways, felt like I had not accomplished having an eating disorder in any way, right? I, I hadn't lost weight. I hadn't successfully restricted in any way. And so things started to get very dark for me very quickly. And by the age of 18, I had graduated from high school and my family, despite knowing about my eating disorder, was thinking that I was still fine because at that time I was faking my weight at weigh-ins and stuff. So they let me go off to college and after about three months there, I was pulled out due to my heart rate was extremely low, you know, extremely sort of volatile. And although I was still faking my weight and doing some really extreme things on that And it was clear to people and clear to the nurses at my school that I was potentially going to die. So they pulled me out. I was, I was brought back to Chicago by my mother. She, she drove 12 hours straight from Chicago to upstate New York, picked me up. I mean, she rushed me back home. They brought me to the ICU where I stayed for a few days and from there, I mean, the few days that I spent in the ICU, it was like a lifetime. There was so much that happened in those few days, but that I'd be happy to talk more about. 
um, that propelled me to a five-month stay at um, ERC in Denver, which I know I mentioned to you in that email. I love ERC. They did great work with me, at least. And yeah, after that, I have been solidly on the path to recovery. I'm now fully recovered. And I I talk about it a lot online. And yeah, I guess on podcasts now as well. Thank you, Lily. Thank you so much for being willing to share. You said there's more to that time in the ICU. Would you like to share a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. I know that I, I did talk a little bit about this on my dad's podcast. So if I'm repeating myself, forgive me. But so while I was in the ICU, it was like the lowest weight that I had been, but in my mind, it was not enough. And when I got there to the ICU, I was initially planning to do everything I could to get out of there and to lose just a little bit more weight and then go into treatment. So I really had it in my head that that I was going to recover, just not yet. So while I was there, I had you know, uh, there was an influx of people from my life who came in and visited me. Like among them was that ballet mentor who I mentioned and just really mostly my family. I remember my brother coming in to visit me who at the time was maybe, maybe 16 or or so. And I had never seen him cry, but he, he saw me and he started crying, just silently crying. And that you know, you never forget when someone that you love who doesn't cry starts crying. That is like an unforgettable experience. My dad and my mom also had very different different approaches at that time of how to engage with me. My mom was trying so hard to give me so much love and I was not receiving any of it. I was in such a deep, dark self-hatred at that time that that, that amount of and that intensity of love just bounce right off of me. My dad, on the other hand, took a super different approach. And for those who don't know my dad, he's, he's an economist and he is, he is sort of hardheaded and not super emotional. And he, he's a great guy. Love him, of course. But he basically said to me, look, I, I love you, but I'm not going to watch you wither away. So if you decide to get help, I will do I will do anything I can to help you. I will take you to the best psychologist, I will take you to the best psychiatrist. I will get you into the best treatment that I possibly can. But until then, I'm taking a major step back. And for me hearing that, it was that was a real revelation of like Oh shit, I'm I could lose family from this. I had lost friends. I I had not yet lost my best friends and I thought okay, I'm fine. I have not lost my best friends. I have not lost my family. But in that moment I realized, Lily, there are extreme consequences to what you're doing. Because at that point I didn't care about my health. I didn't care if I I didn't care if I completely withered away. But the fact that suddenly my family might no longer be in my life, that that was like that was in the picture, suddenly that really, that really hit home. Another thing that he said to me that this, I would say, is the thing that actually got me to go into treatment. It was, so this was like uh, early December, I believe, early December of 2018. And 
I was really hoping to get out of the ICU in a few days. I was hoping not to put on that much weight so that I didn't have much more work to do because I was really, I was really, I did want recovery at that point because I was so deeply sad, you know, and so deeply hurting. And I knew, okay, recovery is coming, but just, just give me a little bit more time. And I basically said that to my dad. I said, just give me a little bit more time. Let me spend Christmas with the family, please. I really want to be here for Christmas. I don't want to spend Christmas in a treatment facility, you know? And he looked at me and, you know, with almost no expression, he said, you don't want to spend Christmas with the family. You don't care about that at all. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, think about it. That would entail family dinners and constant oversight. And when would you exercise? And how would you get away with all of this lying if you spent Christmas with the family? And it occurred to me, I did not want to spend Christmas with my family. And that was the most devastating realization because that was not me. That was like a foreigner in my mind had, you know, something had completely taken over because family is everything to me and I love Christmas. So to not spend Christmas with the family that ordinarily when I'm in my right mind, that would be my favorite time of the year, my favorite way to spend that month. Right. And so I really, at that, at that moment, when he said that, I remember my brain going black. It was like a curtain fell over everything. And my mouth just opened and said, I'll do it. I'll go. And I almost didn't hear myself saying it. And my dad said, really? And I remember repeating it because I didn't have any other words like, I'll go, I'll do it. And I remember him leaving the room, telling my mom what had happened. She was waiting right out there. And she was like, I'm not saying anything. I might not even say goodbye, wheel her away, take her away right now. And so it felt like within five minutes, they had removed the tube from my nose, which, oh my goodness, that was the most incredible feeling. I think they had placed it incorrectly in my nose. And so it was so it was terribly painful. They, they wheeled me away. They got me sent off. I don't remember anything really from traveling there. I assume I had to take a plane to get from Chicago to Denver, but I don't remember a second of it. I think my whole world felt like it was collapsing during that time. But in a way, you know how they say you have to break down to break through. I imagine that's what that period felt like because I have no memory of it whatsoever after that conversation. But yeah. Oh, Lily, that's so, so profound and poignant. Thank you so much for being willing to share that. What are your thoughts societally in terms of what contributes to this? I know there's so many of the superficial things that most of us all know, but I'm wondering, you're such a deep thinker around this. What are your thoughts in terms of what's going on societally kind of ecosystem wise. And then you've shared some about the origins for you. And I'm wondering if you have any additional insight in terms of how that came to be. I hear you in terms of ballet accelerating it. 
and those different points. But I'm wondering if you have any sense of the origins for you or if like so many things that many people can relate to, we're actually not completely sure where the OCD comes from or the depression necessarily comes from or how our panic disorder started. Yeah, of course. I do have a lot of thoughts on this. I hope I can convey it effectively. So the first one that I see for myself and for others is the hereditary aspect. So eating disorders are incredibly hereditary, super inheritable. So my mom struggled with an eating disorder, which I found out after, you know, I had struggled already quite a bit. I was like, oh, this would have been good to know. But I, yeah, I think about I don't know the actual statistics, but I do remember the number like 50% in terms of heritability. So I think it's not like if your parent had an eating disorder, then there's a 50% chance that you have an eating disorder, but maybe that's something we can interject later. It's a, it's a really fascinating statistic. So that's one side of things is heritability. And then society is a whole other part of it right now we see so much happening in the world of like social media. So not only are people more open about their struggles with eating disorders, which is in some ways good, but it also in a way normalizes eating disorders. So you see, we see far more incredibly thin bodies online than we ever do in real life. So I think that's one thing. And it's, it's glamorized a lot on, on Instagram and other platforms. You do see this world of sort of pro Anna has sort of taken off. It's, it's been quelled a bit in recent years. I know that probably its peak was like, you know, 2012 or so, which is ironic, you know, when I was 12, but that world of pro Anna on Tumblr and it sort of invaded all different platforms that really just targeted young people and and made them think that eating disorders were glamorous in a lot of ways. And the thing is, it, the more people who develop eating disorders now and then go online and in a way normalize it, the more people are going to develop eating disorders. And then the way that they recover is they go online and they, in a way, normalize it. And it just builds upon itself and it becomes this this sort of unstoppable phenomenon in the world. And so those are a couple things that I see going on. Another thing I think is on the treatment side of things. You, you don't see enough online about people who have eating disorders, but are not underweight. So the vast majority of people who struggle with eating disorders are not underweight. And I mean, I'm talking I think it's 94% of people who struggle with eating disorders will never be clinically underweight, according to BMI. So only 6% of people who struggle with an eating disorder will have a BMI of 18.5 or below ever in their life. And when you ask probably anybody on the street, unless they have an eating disorder, which does not entail them being underweight, they will say, yeah, eating disorders, oh, that's like, you know, when they're super skinny and they don't eat and they're scared of food and they overexercise and stuff. So there's this, there's this weird contradiction in our world of there's so much talk about eating disorders, but there's so little understanding of what they really are and how they manifest and what they look like. Because the truth is they don't look like anything at all. 
they look like the a huge spectrum within eating disorders there are i could probably list 12 of them for you and they will all manifest differently within a person's life and within a person's behavior so that's sort of a long-winded way of saying it seems like just about everything nowadays could lead to someone developing an eating disorder um but there is hope with that. I mean, I was able, despite the, the, the yuckiness, the murkiness of, of the online world and eating disorders, I managed to recover online. You know, I managed to make a space that was actually safe, was actually a refuge um, for me. And I, I do believe that, that that is an exception, but it's the fact that I was able to do it is crazy to me. And I feel very blessed that I was able to. Right. Right. Yeah. And Lily, because of what you just shared, I know, I know listeners will be curious about this. I think there are kind of the classic we know about in terms of purging, binging, restricting, you know, so I think there's some of some that, that many people are aware of, but can you share with us what are what are some of the ways that folks might have challenges around this that are less known and that would be less noticeable possibly for for people who are caring about others? So the big one that I think would be less noticeable is really the spectrum of disordered eating and just disordered thinking. I think that that's something that people don't talk about enough. I mean, the, the time when I would say I struggled the most with my eating disorder and received the least support for it was when I did not engage really, quote unquote, successfully in eating disorder behaviors. But it was like every single thought in my mind was disordered. It was like, you should be working out. You should not be eating that. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. But I, something in me, was not able to engage. I was more focused on survival. My body was like, no, actually, we're not going to do those things. We're not going to, I'm sorry. And I think people people really think that the engaging in these disordered behaviors and these disordered actions is what brings so much harm to someone's life. And certainly that is a big part of it. But the thoughts are what precede those. And the thoughts are debilitating. And so just this cycle of disordered thinking, even if you don't engage in disordered behaviors, that is super detrimental. And there's no diagnosis for that because actions are required for a diagnosis. You know, another one that comes to mind is very normalized by the media and that's what they call bigorexia. So that's predominantly affects males and it really it entails being very focused on sort of macros and and food and protein and all of that stuff in conjunction with intense exercise usually weightlifting and i think bodybuilding that sort of bodybuilding culture is very very big and very um pervasive for guys online and that is very rarely looked at as an eating disorder because people will see these guys with big muscles and seemingly are shredded and jacked and whatever else kind of words you want to use for it. And they'll say, wow, I want to be like that. Like that guy is living a healthy lifestyle, this, that, and the other thing. The truth of the matter is like, if you look like that, unless 
you live in ancient Greece, like that actually is not probably sustainable for your lifestyle. I mean, you are probably doing a lot of things to get to that physique. And you're also probably not doing a lot of things that get you to a healthy, happy life. So that's another one. I mean, there are other things like ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which you see a lot in younger kids who are described as being picky eaters. A lot of them actually have ARFID. Uh, you see like another one is uh, PICA. I think that's how it's pronounced. And this is something that you see a lot with pregnant women who then continue these behaviors after pregnancy. A, a common one is like eating dirt or eating different substrates that just aren't actually edible. And really there are so many. And just a, one final one that I want to mention is sort of a mixture of tons of different behaviors. So people who struggle with anorexia and bulimia and binge eating, all of these things sort of joining together at once, it makes it incredibly hard to treat. It also makes it incredibly hard to diagnose because it's sort of like the ultimate eating disorder, yet you won't receive a single eating disorder diagnosis. And that can be incredibly invalidating for people because you're struggling with so many different thoughts. And yet in the DSM, there is nothing for you technically. So yeah, that's sort of how I would answer that question. I'm also realizing that I alluded to my recovery account, but I never really mentioned it. I do have a recovery account on Instagram. I've had that since I was a teenager and it's really like grown and blossomed with me. So that's at recovery and discovery. If you want to check that out, probably it will be linked somewhere, but yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Lily. When you were going through this, it sounds like you had a lot of love around you. And as with so many things, when we go through hard times in life, let's assume everything's well-intentioned. There are some things that are very constructive, super edifying, really, really helpful. And then there's some other things that are so not. Can you remember some of the things that you found to be particularly helpful and some of the things that, again, let's let's assume everything was well-intended, just some things that, wow, were really not helpful. I think that will help inform, you know, for anybody who's caring about somebody who's struggling, including perhaps themselves, some next steps possibly. Yeah, certainly. So the first thing that comes to mind is actually an example from just about a week ago. I was with my family and I think we had just had a family meal and my grandpa, who I call Poppy, he just said to me sort of offhandedly, we were just walking together. He was like, well, your weight's looking good. And see that because I'm fully recovered, that to me, just, you know, it, that made me happy. I was like, I'm glad to know that he cares about me. I feel like he, obviously when I heard that it didn't trigger me in the slightest because I no longer have an eating disorder. But if I still had an eating disorder, I cannot tell you the madness that would have ensued after that comment. I mean, that would have been incredibly triggering for probably obvious reasons, but because he just mentioned my weight and said it was looking good. So if you have a restrictive eating disorder, really, if you have probably 
almost any eating disorder besides some of the ones that I mentioned, like PICA, ARFID, um, bigorexia that aren't actually like the person is kind of hoping to be small. For obvious reasons, that is not the greatest comment to mention to someone who has a restrictive eating disorder. Um, in fact, mentioning their weight in any regard is not going to be helpful because these individuals are always going to be looking for something that they can latch onto, which will fuel their, really fuel their addiction, right? So anything that, even making comments about the healthiness of someone's hair or their skin could be potentially triggering. So if I was struggling a lot with my eating disorder and someone said something about me looking healthy or or my hair looking healthy, that would be, that the eating disorder would say, you aren't starving yourself adequately. Your hair should look should look brittle and thin and there should be no shine if you were actually properly starving yourself. So when someone's in recovery, I would advise you not to say anything about their appearance whatsoever. Maybe, maybe say that they have more of a sparkle in their eyes, but that's like as far as I would go with that. I would really say that like they're starting to light up, you know, or that they're starting to light up the room again or that their laugh is sounding fuller, you know, or that their smile is more genuine now. These things that the eating disorder almost can't twist. Those are compliments that can go a long way for the person, but not go a long way for the eating disorder. So I, I guess I kind of just answered both of those questions, I hope. Yes. What else when you think back, can you think of some other things that you found to be quite helpful and some other things that just were really not upon yeah, reflection um, when you when you think back over those several years? Yeah. So most attempts to get me to eat, no matter how sneaky, would roll right off of me because the eating disorder is undoubtedly sneakier. Than, than everybody else in the room who's trying to get me to eat, right? So one of the things that was most helpful was when I was able to spend quality time with people um, without any risk of sort of food intruding on that experience. So if I knew, okay, this is going to be a chance for me to connect with this person, but they, it's not over a meal, you know, even like going to the movie theater, but they say to me beforehand, Whatever you feel comfortable eating, even if it's nothing, that's fine. I just want to spend time with you. That can be really helpful because it's not about food. You know, the eating disorder is not about food. It's really about, I mean, it can be about many different things, but oftentimes it comes down to shame and self-hatred. And so if you find a way to connect with a person outside of food, that combats the the core of the eating disorder, which is shame and self-hatred. And so if you can find a way to permeate that core, if there's food or exercise or something that the eating disorder can latch onto that's involved, that's outside of that core, you're not going to get to the person, you know, at the heart of it. And so oftentimes people are so worried about the eating disorder that they forget about the person. And they, they forget that this is someone that they love and that they care about. They get so focused on, we need to we need to remove the eating disorder from them. No, you need to love the person. You know, you need to love the person. You need to let them fight the eating disorder themselves. If you love the person, if you if you try and actually help the person, they will have more strength to fight the eating disorder themselves. 
One of the things, Lily, you're saying that I'm really struck by is the degree to which one's insight, intelligence, creativity, self-awareness, how it can be used, and this is not unique to eating disorders, but how much all of that, when we do struggle, can be used against ourselves, that we can use it against ourselves. There's there's ways that you're sharing that it's so clear that the same tenacity you had that allowed you to get through school, do your ballet, do the home, like, like all of that, then when this struggle presents, that same tenacity gets put towards this struggle. And I think that light shadow dynamic is something that many people can relate to. I think it just makes it so painful though, because it's, it's the way that we work against ourselves, right? That you can have this incredible creativity and then if we're struggling with disordered eating or if we're struggling with anxiety or if we're struggling with whatever it might be, there's a way that that can get distorted. And then we use that creativity to harm ourselves. Or if we have this high level of intelligence and we're super clever, then there's a way that that can get connected to an eating disorder, to something else. And then we use it against ourselves. And I think that that's something that we don't necessarily factor in enough when we're trying to support people. Yeah. I don't know your so thoughts this, on that. I have so many thoughts on this, Laura. So this is really interesting you say that because I, since I was little itty bitty, um, I have been incredibly creative and that was sort of one of my only strong suits for a while. I, I, I couldn't read until I was 12. I couldn't do math. I couldn't do really anything, but I was inventing little things and I was so talkative and, you know, so interested and so passionate. And the eating disorder, when that came along, it took all of those good qualities and it twisted them and it used them to its fullest um, capabilities. And this was really clear. This was made very clear when I needed to find a way, quote unquote, needed to find a way to fake my weigh-ins. Because someone who was less intelligent and less creative would not have been able to fake weigh-ins to the degree that I did. And I mean, I went to extremes. I did crazy shit, which I will not ever say on a podcast anywhere. I'm not giving anyone any tips. But had I been less creative, my eating disorder, my biggest relapse that put me into treatment, that would have been sniffed out so quickly you know, had I not been such an inventive liar and such a creative manipulator, you know, but what I will say to this is that that creativity, that intelligence, which by the way, is higher in people with eating disorders. Like they have done studies on this. People with eating disorders have higher IQs than the general population. It's no surprise. I mean, these are people who pick up on like societal cues much earlier. Um, than the general population. So these, these points of tenacity within our personalities, they can always be reclaimed. You can always reclaim your power and you can always put that into recovery. Um, 
the eating disorder does not take away your intelligence. It does not take away your creativity. It, it took away some time, you know, but that's it. And you, there's more time. There's more time to get back. Um, so I, yeah, but that's a really good point, which I don't think a lot of people realize the amount of creativity and, and intelligence that it takes to have a sustainable eating disorder in this world, you know, especially when you're young and you have parents and you have people watching you like a hawk to get away with these behaviors. It takes, it takes quite an incredible person. Yeah. I really, really, really hear you on that. And Lily, so what would you share with somebody who is struggling themselves? Let's let's start there in terms of I really want folks to be able to hear advice from you. What would you share? What would you advise for somebody who who is struggling themselves? Either they really are understanding that something is not going well and they do need some help or the many, many people who have folks in their lives who are like, Hey, everything. Okay. And they're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And they're not fine, but they're not at a place of being able to reconcile that. Yeah, certainly. So the first thing that comes to mind when talking about giving advice to someone who's struggling themselves is probably not what people would expect. Most people would expect me to say, get help right now. My advice to you is to be realistic about whether or not you're ready. Because the thing with eating disorders and with, with almost everything in life is that there is a sort of timeline and there is a trajectory. And to try and intercept that tra natural trajectory before you're ready can often actually prolong the eating disorder. So when I said that earlier in our conversation, when I said that my ballet mentor actually stepping in and telling my parents before I was ready, how that actually did more harm than good, I, I do believe that because I, at that point in time, I did not feel like my eating disorder had run its course by any means. And I knew that I was going to continue to be sick, whether or not other people were really watching over me or not. And so my advice to these people who are struggling is to struggle. It's to struggle if you need to struggle. But the moment that you start thinking about recovery, the moment that you start waking up and being like, I don't want this anymore. Listen to that because there will be, your eating disorder will wake you up until one day something else starts to right? There is a point in your eating disorder where you become so tired, you become so angry that you actually feel like, oh my gosh, I might be able, I might be angry enough to kick this now. Not to wait for that moment, but to be always listening for it, for when it comes, right? Because it will, it will. And so don't, don't get so used to the eating disorder that you forget that recovery is there too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that would be my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice for people is to honestly get offline, get off of social media. If you can, if your work does not require it, get offline, go to treatment. If you can, you know, I know that it's not affordable. It's not necessarily an option for everybody, but if it is an option, do that because it's like, 
you take some months off of your normal life and you're sort of nursed almost like a baby back to life because they, they make it impossible to engage in your rituals and your behaviors. And, and it, it's a, a very necessary reset for a lot of people. And my next piece of advice would be that if you are underweight, if you're under the weight that your body wants to be at, you will not recover. You will not feel better. You might not even feel better until you are over your healthy weight. So when I was recovering, I felt truly terrible after they released me from treatment. So I was at my healthy weight and they said, you're good to go. Like you're, you know, essentially you're recovered, you're free. And I remember feeling even worse than I did when I came in. Right. It felt like my mind was still in that emaciated and depleted and dark place, but my body was healthy again, quote unquote, healthy again. It took me around two years of what they call extreme hunger. So eating immense amounts of food, enough to feed a small family every single day. So two years of eating so much food and gaining a fair amount of weight after I was weight restored for it to actually click in my brain. Right. And so that would be my last piece of advice for people who are struggling is you do not get to decide how much food you need and how much weight you need to gain. That is up to your body. Clearly your mind doesn't know what the hell it's doing. You've got to, you've got to let your body just take the reins and find health again, because our minds don't know health at that point. You almost just have to turn off a switch and say, you know what? I know for the past, however many years I've only cared about my body and and food, but I'm literally not allowing that anymore. That got me to this place. I'm turning that off and I'm going full primal mode. I'm eating whatever I want. I'm not exercising. I'm laying in bed all day. I'm doing whatever my body tells me to. And I'm going to sleep up here in my brain. She's going to sleep. I'm just doing what I need to do to regain my physical health. And ironically, that is also what restored my mental health was just complete opposite action, which for those who don't know, opposite action is exactly what it sounds like. You have a a disordered thought, you do the opposite. It was my biggest rule in recovery was opposite action and challenge repeat, which means I, every disordered thought I had, I did the opposite of it and challenge repeat. Every time that happened again, I would just repeat it. It was just like this constant cycle of like, it was just like opposite day every single day for two years. It was like, whatever my head told me to do, boop, doing the other thing, the exact opposite of it. I, I don't, oh, you shouldn't eat that ice cream. Oh, you're going to eat the whole tub. Oh, I should probably, I should probably do a workout now that I just ate that whole tub of ice cream. Boop, you're going to go lie in bed. So it was like that for two years. So that's a lot of advice I know for people struggling with eating disorders, but those are genuinely like my biggest tips. It's wonderful, Lily. Let me ask you, follow up on this. So you get released. They tell you, okay, solid, good to go. Here's all the ways that we, you know, understand that to be true. You're sharing how horrible you felt. 
then you go home and then you were you able to have that relationship in your brain where you're outside of yourself somewhat watching yourself with you know the thought that you have and then you decide to do opposite action did you was that like a relationship you had in your brain where you had internalized what you'd learned in treatment and you were on board and you knew that that was the path like how did you ride out two years is a really long time to ride that out so did you have the clarity and you had to then go through the actions of it or are you saying physically you were pulled by the physical piece of it i'm curious about how that came to be it was partly the physical piece but it was also um this sort of like flipping of the switch is that or yeah flipping of the switch in my brain yeah the way that i was able to do this the best way i can describe was this understanding that for so long i had abided by eating disorder rules so rigidly so i knew cognitively girl you know how to follow rules you just need to change the rules so i changed the rules i i mean every rule that i had no, not only no longer applied, but it had an opposite rule, which I now followed instead. And certainly at first that is so much easier said than done, but after a little while of doing it, it became easier to listen to those rules than it did the other ones. And nowadays, I mean, a sort of disordered thought of like wanting to exercise or wanting to restrict. I mean, I've physically would not be able to do that anymore. It's like I fully have reset my brain and I I have a different set of rules now. And during my recovery, I had two different sets of rules. I had the sort of archived eating disorder rules and I had the new recovery rules. And it was about every day choosing the recovery rules to abide by. And now the archived eating disorder rules have fully fallen by the wayside and just don't exist in my brain. So that is sort of how I did that. Of course, like I said, easier said than done, but that is kind of just how life is, is just doing things. Even if you don't want to, it's knowing, okay, I'm going to feel better if I do this. I know it's awful, but I'm going to feel better if I do it. And if I do it long-term, if I continue doing it, I'll start feeling like myself again. I really just wanted to feel like myself again. And that's, I think that's probably what pushed me through, like in my, in my heart, in my soul was wanting to return to myself. And cognitively, I knew that these rules, these recovery rules are going to get me there. So I just did that. It was a matter of a lot of just doing it. Like Nike should have sponsored my recovery. It was just doing it just doing the thing, you know, over and over and over and over and over again. And do you think, Lily, do you think it's essential for somebody to get to a place of understanding? You said earlier, a lot of eating disorders can be about self-hatred, self-shame. I know historically we've talked a lot about it in terms of control, and wanting to have control because of perhaps something having happened in one's life. Do you think it's essential that somebody has 
the understanding of what the roots are and where that comes from, and then makes a conscious decision of, I actually want to live. You're saying, you know, you wanted to feel like yourself again. Is that a critical component, both the understanding of like, like where did this even come from? And now I'm going to choose something different. Is that essential for being able to recover or do you think you can somehow find yourself on a path to recovery without either knowing the origins or making such a conscious choice that you want something different? I, this is a really interesting question. I've never thought about it, but my instinct would be that actually, no, you probably don't need to know the origins. You probably don't need to have a full understanding or a full grasp of your self-hatred before you start to do something about it. Because realistically, unless you are an actual terrible person, there is no real reason why you hate yourself. It is not logical. It is not based in rationality. So to try and rationalize that and try and you know, get to the bottom of it, there's no bottom. It's just there. It's just there. It's like this pit of darkness in your soul that you need to shine light on, right? But shining that light on isn't going through that darkness and parsing it apart. It's sort of like nursing yourself back to life. It's like someone, I actually heard this analogy the other day, but if a snake was like slithering in the grass and bit you, you wouldn't run after the snake grab the snake and be like, why would you bite me? Why would you bite me? You would tend to that wound, right? You would, you would let the snake slither away and you would try and heal yourself. And so I really, I I would bring that to this conversation as well and say, you, you have this wound. You don't need to go on this quest to figure out who gave you the wound or, or why it's there. You can simply heal it. You can do, I mean, if you think that in order to heal it, you have to understand, like if somebody did give you this wound and you need to repair that relationship or you need to end that relationship in order to heal, that's one thing. For me, that was not the root of my self-hatred. My self-hatred was this nebulous, amorphous thing that nobody caused. It was just there ever since I was little. And so I didn't have a clear snake to chase you know, but if you do, by all means, I don't want that snake coming back to bite you again. So if that's your path, do that. But I think for a lot of us, we have this, this self-hatred that there's no clear explanation where it came from. And so to try and explore that might not even get you where you want to be. Yeah. Really hear you on that. And in terms of having to make a conscious choice, to what degree, again, you're, you were sharing that for those part of what helped you get through those two years after you came out of being residential was this desire to feel like yourself again. So do you think it's critical for somebody who's going to find effective recovery that some sort of a choice that they need to make some sort of a choice in terms of wanting to live, wanting this to be different, wanting their life to be different, that even if they have all the love in the world around them, 
that's not going to be able to overcompensate for their lack of making their own choice, right? It seems like with how you're beautifully describing this, the Herculean effort it took you every single day, that if that wasn't coming from deep within, even all the love around you might not have been enough to buoy you. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's kind of why I say, if you are not ready for recovery, there might not be a point right now in trying to recover because it does, it comes fully from within. But I do believe that as long as someone has hope, that hope for recovery is in hope for their life. That is when I went to treatment, there were a few people who I could almost see in their eyes and the way that they spoke, that they actually had lost all hope for themselves. And those are incidentally the people who have since passed away. Every other single person who, when I saw them, I said, they, I, I can tell that there's hope within them. Those people now are fully recovered like me. And I talk to them still, you know? And so if you have hope, the eating disorder does not stand a chance, quite, quite frankly. And the eating disorder will do whatever it can to take away your hope because once it does, it knows that, that, that it can be the thing that will kill you, right? It wants full control. Your eating disorder wants to kill you. But as long as there's this little tune of recovery, like being sung inside your heart, inside your brain, then I'm, I'm not worried for you. You know, I know that you will get there. I also know that it might take time. It might take more time than your mom or your dad or your siblings want to acknowledge. I mean, of course, they, they want to see you healthy tomorrow. They want to see you healthy today. But the thing is, if you've been struggling with an eating disorder for years, it is not going to take a day. It's not going to take a month. It's not even going to take a year. You know, you're probably going to be in recovery for as long, at least, as you were in your eating disorder. And that's something that people don't want to hear. You know, they want to hear that they can speed up that process. And realistically, I think that I had one of the speediest recoveries that I could have possibly had. I mean, I did, I did absolutely everything I could to get rid of it as fast as possible. And it still took me two years, right? But that's just two years. And now I have the rest of my life to live. And so people could, could, you could say, but it took you two years. The time will pass anyway. You could be, you could be two years on and you could be fully recovered, or you could be two years on and exactly where you are right now. Which do you want? Both are going to be hard. Both are going to be painful, but one of them is the pain of growth. And one of them is the pain of stagnation and you have to choose your pain. And one of the things Lily that you're sharing so beautifully is the challenge of having enough wherewithal resource, hopefully scaffolding around you, first of all, to keep a baseline level of safety as one goes through this. I think it's it's very powerful what you're saying if somebody isn't quite there yet on the trajectory, mm-hmm. that that can't be forced. And also wanting to make sure that ideally folks have this scaffolding around them so we can keep folks safe, bottom line. Mm-hmm. And then connected with that is making sure there is some ever-present 
buoying. So even if the hope that you're describing isn't readily available within the person themselves, that other folks can be holding that faith, even if they can't do the actions for the person, but that hope can be kept alive outside of the person. Definitely. I mean, there were only a few people I would say in treatment who I would look in their eyes and I would see the hope alive within them. But that is not to say that there were many, many people that I went to treatment with, right? And there were only a few people who had seemed to actually have given up hope on recovery and on life. And in those cases, that is the that is truly heartbreaking because those are people who come in, go in and out of treatment over and over again, because they have people shining the light and saying, no, you need, you need something more than this. But, and it's not to say that those people are helpless and that those people are hopeless. It's just to say that those are people that are much harder to help than others. But the vast majority of people who struggle with an eating disorder, their like little internal hope light turns off but it's not broken. It's not smashed to bits. It's still there. It's just hasn't been flipped on in a really, really long time. And so there are absolutely things that other people can do to turn that light back on. Or really, if I'm going to fully give into this analogy, it's more like these people outside shine a light onto their light and say, look, there's a hope light. You got to turn that on. You got to figure out how to turn that on. Because I do think that we are the only person that can flip that switch for ourselves. But like you said, safety is of the utmost importance. I mean, eating disorders are incredibly deadly. They're the most deadly psychiatric mental illness that there is, even above suicidality. So people whose mental illness makes them want to die makes them want to kill themselves. Eating disorders are more deadly even than that. And so I can't stress enough how much I want everybody listening to be safe. And if you don't feel, if you feel like your hope light is shattered, it's not because you're listening to this podcast. You made it this far. If your hope light was shattered, you would never have clicked on this podcast in a million years. The fact that you are listening tells me there's some part of you that desperately wants recovery. And for loved ones, you've shared you've shared so much already in regard to this. Is there anything else for friends, roommates, classmates, family, neighbors, loved ones, anything else you want to share that you think they can do in terms of this shining the light and holding holding out that space? Any anything else really concrete that you think we haven't covered? I would just I would tell those people to take the biggest breath that they can and remind themselves that even when it feels like they are not doing what they need to do because this person hasn't gotten treatment or they haven't accepted help, whatever that thing is that they think is a sign of, oh, I helped this person, This it, it, it is their journey. Unfortunately, you are you are along on this journey with them and you you can walk alongside them but you cannot push them forward you cannot punt them into the treatment center as much as you would like so just remember that you are you're walking alongside them and you're maybe holding their hand and saying hey i'm here i know it's going to get scary i know this path is not easy but i'm here for you whenever you need that is more than enough and i know it doesn't feel like it but it is 
And I can tell you that because I had so many people who tried for so long to literally punt me, you know, to ship me off and send me to treatment and try to send me to this therapist and that therapist and this psychiatrist and, and go to family therapy and all of that. And all these things that were by the books and supposedly going to help me, those things never helped me. What really helped me was taking my hand and saying, Hey, this is your journey. And my journey is to walk alongside you. We've got our own paths. And as long as you have hope and as long as you are going to recover, our paths can align. If there is ever a point where this person who's struggling makes it clear that they will never go to treatment and that they will never show up for you in the way that you need, you can take a step back. And this is what I was you know, saying in that email to you, was that parents or, or loved ones of people with eating disorders, it's, it's incredible to show these people love, but you have to take care of yourselves first. And if you get the sense that the person who's struggling with the eating disorder gets this sort of twisted sense of satisfaction from your worry, your constant fear that they are going to keel over and die, then you need to actually take a step back and say, hey, I love you, but I do not love your eating disorder. And I am here for you, but I am not here for your eating disorder. And if it is your eating disorder that shows up at every single interaction that we have, I will not interact with you. And that can be so hard because it feels like you're giving up on the person. You're not. You're giving up on the eating disorder and you're hoping you're crossing your fingers. You're praying to God. I hope they show up for me one day without the eating disorder, but there's nothing that you can do to ensure that, right? You're doing absolutely everything you can. I just want to remind those people that the way that you show up for people struggling they remember that when they're not struggling anymore. I mean, I appreciate you, whoever you are, because I have so many friends and family who I just, I just, at the time when I was struggling, I hated them for how they were showing up for me. And now I look back and I just thank God that they were in my life in the way that they were. And so even if this person is not showing you love, even if they're saying, I hate you, mom, I hate you for making me eat. I hate you for sending me off to treatment. You are the worst. I will never love you the way I used to. That is the eating disorder talking. That is not them. And they will come back. Lily, thank you so much. Our last question Anything you can share with us in terms of what you present day are doing practice-wise, we like to give our listeners really concrete suggestions about how you are continuing to navigate personal practices you employ to keep yourself going. What are some of your non-negotiables that you find to be really centering, grounding, really helpful for you? That's a great question. So- one of those sort of non-negotiables for me is I don't really exercise very much. Um, a lot of people ask me, how does, what does exercise look like for you in your recovered life? Like there's something that people recover for is to have a healthy relationship with exercise. Um, my healthy relationship with exercise is that I don't do it because I don't like it. So I, yeah, that is a more of a negotiable because if I start to enjoy exercise again, maybe I'll introduce it. But for the time being, 
I'm perfectly happy being a couch potato. Lily, thank you so much for having this conversation. Thank you for being so open and incredibly honest and forthcoming and for all that you share online and for the way you have for years and then for your willingness to continue to put out both your story so folks can learn from you and also the tremendous wisdom and insight you have around this. It's such a gift to be able to be in your presence and to be able to receive it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was, I was a little nervous beforehand, but instantly so personable and like so kind. So I just totally no nerves. It's just like talking to an old friend. So I can't thank you enough for just making, making the time and making the space. Our podcast, Future Tripping, is a Trauma Stewardship Institute production. I, Laura, am your host and producer. Our incredible executive producer and sound engineer is Olivia P. Sunier, without whom this podcast would not be possible. It's edited and mixed by Tom Stiles, with original music by Cameron DeVore. Our graphic designer is Evie Burroughs-White. Thank you for downloading and subscribing, and, as always, please give us a holler with any questions or suggestions. We can be found at traumastewardship.com and on Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. There you can find both an email and phone number where you can ask your questions of our upcoming guests. I am grateful you joined us. Please remember, however your overwhelm is feeling today, you're not alone. You're in good company, and I look forward to being with you here on Future Tripping again next week. <laughs> <laughs>